this week, I wanted to speak specifically about the Old Testament. So if you would, uh, turn with me to the Old Testament. Maybe start in Genesis. What I want to do, uh, what I want to do this morning is a number of things. If I can kind of hit three objects with one stone, I'm going to do that. I would love to set us up for the next couple weeks. These sermons in Israel, we, you know, if, if you've been here for a while as a church, we've been going, we've been spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. Ruth, uh, the story of God, um, uh, Dan, the book of Daniel and uh, certain places like that. We were in Samuel last week. Just really been feeling this, this gravitation towards the Old Testament. What I wanted to do today is, number one, give us a little groundwork for how to understand the Old Testament. Maybe for, for some of us, it's like an anomaly. We love the occasional exciting story that comes up, but maybe harder to understand and interpret than parts of the letters in the New Testament. So I want to do something that will help us with that. Two, uh, you know, obviously as we're going to be going into some of these sermons that come directly out of Israel. Uh, two, I want us to have a, an understanding ourselves of the Old Testament. Why should we read it? Why should we be excited about it? How does it fit into everything else? And three, I'd love for us to see how Christ, as he said on the road to Emmaus, as he was walking with his disciples as he ro- after he rose from the dead, the entire Bible, or in his words, the, the, the uh, prophet's, Uh, And the writers, all of it points to me. The Bible is about me. That includes, obviously, the Old Testament. From Genesis to uh, to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation, the whole thing is all about Jesus. Now, that might be clear and obvious when you're reading about Jesus in Matthew or reading about Paul talking about Jesus in Romans, uh, but as you're reading through Leviticus and Joshua and 1 Kings and uh, 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 Jeremiah and so on and so forth, I'd love for you to see the, the beauty and the splendor of our Messiah surfacing to the top. Uh, and so that's what I'm going to try to do. Those three things as we go through this portion uh, of the Bible. What I'm going to do is not so much go verse by verse through a book or a passage. I want us, as we've done in, uh, in the past, I think we did this about a year and a half ago, is take a really uh, wide bird's eye view of a large chunk of scripture. Uh, take a, a little bit of altitude, you know, flying 30,000 feet, uh, 30, feet, so to speak, above the text. And the part of it that I want to cover today is Genesis through 1 Kings. Right, So I'm not going to go into every single book. I'm going to spend uh, a lot of time in Genesis, and your, your turn there already, and then a, a little bit of time in 1 Kings, kind of the bookends. And this is why. In the Old Testament, the main story, everything that's happening is from Genesis to Kings or Chronicles. They're kind of they're similar. Everything after that is just commentary. It's just prophets talking about what happened. But when we speak about the Old Testament story of Israel, it happens, it starts in Genesis, it ends in Kings and Chronicles. So I want to take that story that maybe some of you are saying, I don't understand it, what does it have to do with anything? Let's just read about Jesus and Matthew. I want to take that story and I want to talk about it a little bit to hit some of these three points. And I want to do that not by looking at a bunch of details, although we will do that here and there. I want to back out with kind of a panoramic view of the whole story. And I believe that once you see the whole story, you can just kind of turn it around like a diamond, just see all of these different facets. I'm hoping and I'm trusting 
uh, that the, it will begin to click in your mind. You will be enriched, not only by the Old Testament, but by the story of God itself. And, of course, Jesus Christ, of whom the story is primarily about. So I want to start in Genesis. Um, and I'm just going to read the whole thing. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to read a few verses, specifically verse 26 through 28, because I want to hone in on that. But before I do, I'm just going to narrate the first part, which probably a lot of you are familiar with. It's the creation epic. But before we do that, um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so, uh, so thankful and thrilled Not only that we get to read about this historical story of you redeeming the world and continuing to do so, but we are, we're just as excited, maybe even more excited, not that we just get to read about it, but that we get to step into it. We get to participate into, in, in what you're doing. We believe as, as your people, as God's people, that you are on the move, that you have been for centuries, you still are. Your word does not return void, but it comes back to accomplish its purpose. Every word you speak, it does something. Whether it's creating the cosmos, whether it's setting blind eyes to see, hearts that have been chained, breaking those chains, whatever it is that you speak, it always accomplishes something. And so we pray, believing that you have spoken through your word, that as it speaks once again, the Holy Spirit, you would cause it to do exactly what you intend it to accomplish in our hearts, in our lives, in our community as a church, in our city, Santa Barbara. And we pray that we would become more like your son, having heard your words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys know the story, or maybe you don't know the story, but I'll, I'll give you just the kind of the cheat sheet of the story. It's a story of God creating the heavens and the earth. And uh, for some of you, maybe you've read it as a kid, maybe you've looked into it as a skeptic, but however, uh, however you may have approached it, you might be a little familiar. I'm not gonna read through the whole thing. It's a large chapter, but it starts with God creating everything. And he goes through various things that he creates, start, starting with the heavens and the earth, creating an, an expanse be, uh, between various bodies, uh, a, a barrier between the water and the land. He starts to populate the space that he has created, cultivating it with life, with plant life, with animal life. And then he ends with the glory of his creation, that is humanity, with you and I. And he does all of this, and in, in doing this, he is making a statement about himself. One of, the, one of the things you have to recognize about the book of Genesis, out of the time in which it arose, was that it was written as kind of a polemic against other creation narratives. We, we might think of Genesis as a polemic uh, against a bunch of other things, uh, a lot of people think that it was written to combat Charles Darwin or various other things that came thousands of years later. Uh, Stephen Hawking, all of these scientific things, it's, it, it's not about that. It is, however, a polemic against uh, competing worldviews, competing creation narratives. Uh, 
all throughout this time in the ancient uh, Near East, specifically Mesopotamia, there were these other worldviews that had these stories, uh, myths and legends about gods who created stuff. And they all had this, this similar thread. They were all different. They all had a similar thread, however. And it went something like this. If I could just summarize them all uh, in a sentence. So-and-so God created, ev- uh, or first was created, maybe created themselves, however that works. And then they started creating other things. And then out of this turmoil, this conflict, this violence, they created human beings. Uh, and as many of the narratives in that day go, they, they made human beings for themselves uh, to serve them. One of the most popular ones in this day was the... Uh, the huge creation narrative, Enuma Elish, where there is a god named Marduk who is battling other gods, killing off all of these other gods, and it's very violent. Out of the blood of this other god, he creates human beings, and as the story goes, makes human beings to be the god's slaves, okay? So that is the popular creation narrative of the day. Imagine if you were used to hearing that coming across this other narrative, It didn't profess to be myth, but profess to be historical narrative. And out of it, you see God, who is uncreated, creating all of this stuff for his joy and glory, calling everything good, not bad, not violent, not awful. And then he creates human beings. And it says in verse 26, read this with me. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over the living, uh, every living thing that moves on the earth, so on and so forth. And here in this creation narrative, we see this uncreated God creating everything for his glory to rule and reign over it. And then as the crowning joy of his creation, he creates human beings, not out of the blood of these gods that he's killed, not out of the dirt or the, uh, or excuse Excuse me, not out of like, uh, 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 he actually does make us out of dirt, <laughs> as the story goes. Uh, not out of kind of the, the turmoil or the chaos, but with divine intent, with purpose, with joy. And he creates them, not as the other narratives say, to be a slave, but to sit with him, to walk with him, and to cultivate this area in which he's created. Already out of chapter 1, we get this image of God creating so that he can rule over it. He creates stuff so that he can rule over it. And then he creates people to cultivate it. We can almost think of them as like vice regents. He is the ruler over everything, but then he creates human beings in his own image to participate in his rule. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, I've created all of this stuff. I want to extend my rule throughout it, and I want you to help me with that. And that has been the commission of humanity since day one. Now, this is beautiful. We are given stewardship since the very beginning to work with our hands, to cultivate the atmosphere, to cultivate culture uh, and the land and the, uh, uh, the air around us to spread the fame of God's glory throughout. That has been the commission and the purpose of humanity since the beginning, in addition to knowing God and walking with him. Now, if the Bible stopped at chapter one, everything would be fine. 
But immediately proceeding, the way everything starts, we get to chapter 3, and you can just turn there with me. I'm just going to flip through various vignettes in Genesis. We see how the plot begins to thicken. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. I'm going to read seven verses. That the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did did God actually say, he's referring to a, a prior conversation, right? Did he actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It's a little paraphrase right there. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired uh, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and so they were doing this together. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, a symbol of shame, right? So there's, a, there's that famous passage which, uh, in which sin enters into the world. I want to talk about that for a second. But before I do, the result of that, sin entering the world for the first time is shame. It's a separation from God. We see in verses 8 through 19, God pronounces, uh, he curses the serpent and pronounces a couple things on uh, Adam and Eve both. And it doesn't look good, but even embedded in that is this promise. In verse 15, look at verse 15, he's cursing the serpent and he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, a child is coming through this woman who's going to give you a headache, okay? If I can put it that way. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Keep that in the back of your mind. This is a, uh, this is a hint of God's promise to come. But out of that, a lot of curses and death and decay and hardship and what was meant to be beautiful, work and labor and all of that stuff is now hard and difficult and there's sorrow involved in it and that's the, that's the beginning uh, or the end of the creation narrative. And as it goes, you get all of these other pictures, right? You get these big cosmic vignettes of things happening. You get uh, Noah and the flood, just uh, uh, God's uh, punishment on the whole globe. You get Cain and Abel, the first murder. You get uh, the Tower of Babel, all of the, the population of the world trying to ascend to the heavens. And it's all this cosmic panoramic stuff for 11 chapters. And all of a sudden, after chapter 11, it stops and everything then begins to focus not on cosmic proportions, not on the heavens and the earth, not on the Tower of Babel, not on the whole population of the earth, but one man, Abraham and his family. The author right now is attempting through his, his writing to give you a hint. He's saying all of this, you know, God, if we were to say what is, what is Genesis about, we'd have to say, well, chapter one, it's about God's kingdom, okay? It's about God's rule and his reign, and sin enters the world and, and stops that. But God promises through all of it that he is going to put an end to death and decay, 
to suffering, to turmoil, and he's going to make everything right. But how is he going to do that? And everything, with all of its cosmic proportions in the story, starts to siphon into one person, Abraham and his family. In other words, it's somehow going to have to do with him and what comes out of his family. And in Genesis chapter 12, and later in Genesis chapter 15, and in Genesis chapter 17, God makes a series of promises to Abraham. And he begins to tighten the lid on what that, that, that promise is going to look like. How is he going to crush the serpent? How is he going to make things right? How is he going to uh, establish his kingdom? And it starts to take on a little more flesh and blood, right? And in these three chapters, he issues a promise. I'm going to bless you. The blessing is going to look this way. One, it's going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a lot of children. It's a population, people. Then he goes on to say, and I'm going to give you a land, some space to dwell. And then I'm going to give you my blessing, speaking of a, a relationship and that peace that comes with knowing God. These three things, those three promises, often called the covenant of Abraham, are reiterated over and over through the last half of Genesis. In other words, we could say at this point, God's rule and his reign are somehow going to come through this covenant to Abraham where God will have a group of people, God will bless them with his rule and his reign, they will be in the space together in that way. This is a covenant relationship and that will somehow also be how he destroys the power of the devil, crushing the head of the serpent. So I want to take, uh, just stop right there and just start to ask the right questions, right? What is the Bible about? If you were to just read the beginning, what is the whole Bible about? And can we figure it out just from the beginning, from the introduction? The first thing we should probably be thinking about at this point is, or at least coming to grips with, is the Bible is not primarily about you or me. It does have to do with you, and there is a lot that it has to say about you, great things, but it's not primarily about you, and you can only get to the good parts about you when you first figure out what it's primarily about, and we'd have to say at this point, given what we have just read, that the Bible is primarily about a kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. God desires to have a kingdom. And somehow it involves people in a space under the rule of God. I love how uh, the scholar Graham Goldsworthy put it. He summarized it in the simplest possible way. He said, the kingdom of God could be understood this way in one sentence. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's it. And that is the theme that you see repeated all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament finding its apex in Revelation. The whole Bible is about God's kingdom and, of course, our part to play in that. Of course, we see it all throughout and we see it reaching its apex in Revelation where it's the way that it's supposed to be. That's where we're headed. And you might look at that and say, well, if we have Revelation, why do we need the Old Testament? If we can read how everything's gonna end, why do we, read need, uh, why do we need to read the interim period? Why do I need to read First Kings? I could just read Revelation, maybe a little bit of Matthew, perhaps a psalm here and there. George uh, Santillano once said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's why. The poignant question that we should be asking ourselves is, where in my life do I often miss God? Where do people in general have the hardest time in their connection with God? 
And if you're having a hard time uncovering that, just ask this question. Thank you, Old Testament. Where did Adam and Eve go wrong in their relationship to God? You might say, well, they ate of the fruit. Symptom. You don't treat symptoms. Where in the deepest part of their heart did things go wrong, and can we learn from that? Now, we would have to say, now, you could put it this way. Adam and Eve looked at God's kingdom and said, I like two-thirds of what's going on here. I like, uh, I like being your people. I like being in your space, Garden of Eden, pretty bad. Free food, rivers everywhere, awesome. I just, I'm, I'm not always hip to the rule part, you know, because I have my own plan. I like to do things my own way. So I like being your people. I like being in your space, but I also like to run my life. That's essentially what happened is that was that break. I don't want to be under the rule of God all the time. But it's even more based than that. We can even go a little bit deeper than that. We, we could say that the issue was really rather simple. It was a trust issue. At the end of the day, both Adam and Eve failed to trust what God had said. He spoke to them. He said, hey, don't eat it of this tree. You can eat of anything else in this perfect utopian environment. Everything only humans in practically the Disneyland of heaven, you can have anything, just my, my shrub here. Just don't. Just don't, don't eat it. And isn't it the proclivity in our hearts, that natural tendency that we all know since we were kids, the one thing we're told not to do, we have to do it. Don't push the red button, I have to push the red button. See? <laughs> push the red button, they eat of the fruit, but it's more than just eating the fruit. I, I don't really even know that there was anything necessarily wrong with the fruit. It was disobeying God's word. Issue was a trust issue. They failed to trust in God. David Destino, uh, writing for the Atlantic, once wrote, and he's speaking specifically about money, but he writes a universal principle. Trust isn't a luxury. It's a tool we need to get by when we can't make it on our own. It's a means of survival for those who must depend on others. Now, I think he's speaking about trust in a, uh, in a diminutive way, but there's so much truth in what he says. Trust comes to those who can't help themselves. In another way of speaking, we could say the more self-sufficient you find yourself to be, the less trusting of others that you are. The more money you accumulate, the more comfort and security in this life that you find yourselves in, the more well-to-do that you, you are, the tendency creeps in that you trust less. Now, not always, I'm not saying this is true for every person at every time, but the tendency. The more well-to-do you are, the less you, are, uh, you need to and are willing to trust other people. And here's the deal. We always are going to face trust issues. Any human everywhere. But maybe more so for us because of where we live, our own little Garden of Eden. Not that there's anything, uh, not, that the, not that it's a perfect city and there's nothing wrong with it. You can uncover a lot, of, a lot of problems here, but it's easy to live here and to ignore those things. It's easy to get swept up in the glitz and the, uh, the beauty and the surfaceness of living in a garden like Santa Barbara. And it can be very easy to cruise into the rest of your life with a carefree attitude that things are perfect and they're fine when they're really not. 
And when there's not that sense of need and desperation, you might quickly find yourself failing to look deep enough inside yourself. When we don't recognize a deep need inside ourselves, we stop trusting God. And you might, you know, this might be a number of things. For Adam and Eve, it was one thing, but for you, it might be, you know, I love being your people, God. I love being in this place that you have for me. I just don't like it when you tell me what to do. You could tell me what to, you know what, uh, not even that extreme. You could tell me what to do with 90% of my life, just not my sexuality, or my relationships, or my life plans, or the manner I choose to retire, or my money, or where I'm going to move, or the job I'm going to take, or the way that I spend my time, or my passions, or my ambitions, or my parenting. I love all of this other stuff. Just, just leave this to me. I, I don't trust you with it. We might not even say that. We might not have the courage to say something like that, but the way that we live may show that we do not trust God with certain areas of our life. And it might not seem like a big deal to you. Oh, it's just a trust issue. Who doesn't have trust issues? But when it's a trust issue with God, it's a big deal because every time we have a trust issue with God, we are repeating the cursed history of the garden. The same sin that happened in the garden that crushed the world occurs in our hearts every day. And it's an affront to God. Every time we fail to trust him with what he says in his word, what he speaks to us in our minds and in our hearts, the way that he directs us, Sometimes he chooses other people to speak to us. Whatever it is, the way that he speaks his truth, every time we fail to trust that he is right and that's the way to live our lives, it is an affront to the holiness of God, to his perfection, to his glory, to his beauty, to his kingship. Why do we read the Old Testament? Because every time we read the Old Testament, we are reading our own hearts. We're reading a script about our own tendencies. History always seems to repeat itself. People are truly the same. And there's an obvious tension in the story. God wants to establish his kingdom, but people don't want to be under the rule of his kingdom. And it starts in Genesis, but that tension just gets exacerbated as you go through the story. It doesn't matter what book you're reading. Uh, It could be, you know, the tension kind of moves forward in the narrative. Uh, Whether you're reading numbers, God always being faithful to his people, but his people complaining and refusing to do what he says. Or Joshua, where there's a group of people that want to be in the land, but there's another group of people that don't trust God with, with going into the land. Or judges where everything is awry and everything is just in a, a, a spin of chaos. And it has to do because with people who long to serve themselves and not God. Or whether it's Samuel and people uh, uh, want to, don't want to be under the rule and reign of God as king. They want a human king. The story lurches forward in this anticipation of freedom, but it keeps, it always seems to halt because of this tenacious sin problem. We fail to trust God and obey Him, leaving us with that age old question that occurs over and over through the scriptures What is God going to do? 
How is he going to fulfill his promise when our hearts are so rebellious? Judges 21 verse 25 tells us, in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You read a little bit of Judges, you you get a glimpse of what it looks like when people fail to follow after God as a community or as a society. It's it's depraved, it's awful, it's depressing, it's sad. So you may look at that and say, oh, easy solution. No king? Well, what we need is a king. And sure enough, after Ruth going into Samuel, the people of God say to God, we don't want you to rule us anymore. We want a human king like all the nations. And so Samuel gives them a human king, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. And after that, we get the book of Kings, and we see a picture of what it looks like for Israel to be ruled by human kings. And you may say, all we need are kings. Then everything will be better, right? Wrong. Turn with me now to the last section, to 1 Kings where I'll end. Specifically, chapter 10 and 11. At this point, I might actually start in chapter 8. Just put your thumb in all three of those places. Fast forward a little bit, Israel gets their human king, Saul, he was awful, deposed of him. King David comes on the scene, he still makes mistakes, but ultimately he follows God, things are great. He destroys every enemy, he takes the land, wants to build the temple, God says, no, I'm going to have your son do it because you're super violent. Solomon comes along, builds the most beautiful house that has ever been seen in those times. One of the greatest displays of human endeavor the world has ever seen up until that time. The house of God for worship. And the blessing of God seems to be happening. It almost seems like it's a place of utopia. All of a sudden we have the people of God. Everything is as good as it can possibly be. There are no enemies. There is peace on all the borders. Uh, There are the people of God living in the place of God, uh, worshiping in the temple of God. We see in that temple just this beautiful description in chapter 8, verse 10 through 11. I love this. Uh, This says, um, verse 10, actually I'm in 2 Kings, sorry about that. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So right there in that spot, the presence of God is so thick the ministers can't even stand There's peace on all the borders. There's so much wealth coming into Israel that people don't even know what to do with it. They're making like just, it's like they're like the silver are their paper plates. You understand what I'm saying? There's so much wealth. There's so much favor. There's no war. Things are brilliant. Solomon has these wonderful gifts of the Spirit. He is so wise. He is so just. It is so good, in fact, that uh, uh, other leaders from around the world travel to meet with Solomon to see, like, what are you doing? Who are you? uh, Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10 rolls up to look at all of his wealth and questions him, asking him all all of these questions that are difficult, and she's just blown away. She says in chapter 10, verse 9, 
Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. All of this stuff is going on leading us to believe this is it. The blessing of Abraham, it's happening. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. This is perfection. It is as it was supposed to be. End of story, right? Wrong. In the next chapter, chapter 11, Solomon drops the ball. I just want to read 11 verses from start to finish so you can get the gist of it. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nation concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. There's always a reason God tells us to do or to not do something. He doesn't tell us things because he's mean and arbitrary, but because he loves us. The reason here, although we don't always get the reason, we get it here, is because these particular women will turn away your heart after their gods. Sure enough, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for uh, Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning these things that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore... The Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. In the chapters to come, in Kings, Chronicles, so on and so forth, Israel gets sent into an exile as a result of Solomon's apostasy. Now, you might read something like this, and when you are so deep into a story, just just kind of that tunnel vision, the details, which we ought to do, you might look at it and think, what does this have to do with me? Oh, it's a moral story. Solomon did this. I should also not do that. Now, there might be some truth to that. But when you back up for a moment to get an idea of the whole story, God cares about his kingdom. You see in it not just a moral story about Solomon and what we should do and should not do, although that is the case. We also see in this a pattern happening in the story. Graham Goldsworthy, again, puts it this way. Listen to this. It says, whereas the history from Abraham to Solomon's temple shows an overall advance or development in the revelation of the blessing of God's covenant, the history from Solomon's apostasy, 1 Kings 11, to the exile shows an overall manifestation of the curses. Okay, I'm going to put it in my words, all right? If you were to take the whole story of the Old Testament and turn it into a visual graph, it would look like a mountain. And the point at the top would be between 1 Kings 10 and 1 Kings 11. And everything from this side, I'm going to mirror you a little bit. Everything from Genesis to 1 Kings chapter 10 is basically an upward incline. You know, 
God, uh, God's people are, are generally speaking trying to follow after God. Now, of course, there are some dips in the story. You know, Judges is a pretty big dip. You know what I'm saying? But ultimately, it's rising to the top, and it looks like, oh, things are getting good, things are getting good, things are getting good. First Kings 11. And from that point on, everything starts to get bad. It's a downward de- decline of people disobeying. Now, sure, there's some little upswings in the narrative. Ruth comes to mind, but ultimately, it's a downward plunge. And if you were to step back and look at the Old Testament in a graph form, it would look like the Tower of Babel, both of which give us the same analogy. No matter how hard people try to be good, they are not good by themselves. No matter how hard we try to achieve God, salvation, success, happiness, it always fails at some point because the problem is not the fruit on the tree, nor is it a particular king or someone that we chose wrong. It's deeply embedded in the heart and soul of every man and woman. It is our rebellious heart that wants to choose everything else except God. Solomon is a mirror of every human person. People do what they want, and that's the problem. I want to live my life. Why should we care about the Old Testament? Because it screams loudly thousands of years later in 2015, just as it did back then. We need a a king. We need a true king sent from on high to rule. I love this. I love these to, uh, I love this quote by a Scottish minister, Alistair Begg, the human heart is a tyrant and it desperately needs a king to rule over it. Christian Smith, professor of sociology at Notre Dame, I've shared a few times from this study, conducted this extensive study of the religious climate of America. He was, in other words, he was curious, you know, we, we've Maybe all heard that stat. 70% of America are professing Christians, which is very confusing, right? Because if you were to, like, if three, if three quarters of the nation were Christ followers, I feel like it would look a little different. And so that might be weird to hear. Like, 70% of, of Americans profess to be Protestant Christians. Well, how does that work? Well, Christian Smith's findings reveal what people actually mean when they say Christian. They have a, a form of spirituality, and the most popular of that. Generally speaking, when people in our nation say, I am religious, or I am Christian, or I love God, whatever the term is, they generally mean a a particular picture that does not match what we see in the Bible. And Christian Smith, because there wasn't a term for it at at that point, comes up with the weirdest possible term that nobody understands because, you know, he's a sociologist, but he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Forget that for a moment. I'm going to explain it in a sentence what he means. If I could put it this way. When people in our country say, I love God, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, generally speaking, what they mean is, their picture of that is, God is someone who exists somewhere and does stuff somewhere, but doesn't really get involved in our lives in any meaningful way and doesn't require much from us. His study is a pretty big book, but generally speaking, he he describes this type of person that goes along and says, but he does kind of jump in when I need him, but then he kind of stays back when I don't need him. So he's kind of like this puppet master in the sky that kind of 
jumps in when I need somebody to comfort me, but he largely stays out of my life and lets me run it by myself. When people say I am a Christian, generally speaking, according to the evidence, that's what they're, that's kind of the image they have. Has nothing to do with a kingdom or following Jesus, nothing that we see in the Bible. Essentially, what people want is the benefits of a personal God without the claim on their lives. I want all the good of knowing God, but none of the hardship of following him or his claims on my life. We like autonomous freedom, but the truth of the matter is, if we want to diagnose below the symptoms, we'd have to say we need the rule of God in our lives. Perhaps that makes you cringe to hear rule or rules or law. I like to think of it in slightly more tangible terms. I took my three-year-old daughter to the zoo the other day, and I was, I'm so baffled by how her mind works because she will have so much fun with the craziest of things. I take her to the zoo, and we never got past the playground. For those of you that have been there, there's a playground that is kind of at the beginning before you get to all the animals, and we're at this playground. We're not actually in the playground playing with playground things. We're, we're in the dirt, okay? And there's little rocks sticking out of the dirt. And the entire morning was spent with her walking like stepping stones on these rocks. And I am behind her saying, Abby, there's like gorillas over there and lions and a train and all of this stuff. Do you want to go see it? She's like, no. You know? And she's like walking and tripping. She's like, daddy, come walk on the rocks with me. And I'm like, but there's like, I want to walk with the lions. You know? And she's so content to be there. And I know this analogy doesn't fit perfectly because that isn't sin. Like, I, it's cute and it's amazing. If that's what you want to do, baby, you can walk on rocks for the rest of your life. I'm here to support that. It's not wrong. But there is also the sense in which you have this bigger picture of everything. You're like, but if you could just follow me over here, I'll blow your mind. Isn't that often the case with sin? Yes, it is ultimately an affront against God, but can you imagine God, our Father, just saying that? Like, we not understanding, you don't know how to run my life, I'm 16 years old, God! Got my driver's license, I know a thing or two about life, I've lived. I'm just gonna do my own thing and you just leave me alone. Can you hear him in the back of your head saying, but, but if you were just walk with me over here, I'm gonna blow your mind. You're ripping yourself off with what you're doing in the meantime. Israel also rips themselves off. They go into exile, out of the land, outside of the rule of God, in turmoil and chaos as a result of their sin. Sin removes us from God's presence and his loving rule. And yet, throughout the story, we see over and over the story is not hopeless, and it's not hopeless for you either. Perhaps you're at the end of a long journey of running from God and you're feeling the brunt end of that. I want to tell you right now, your story is not over and it is not hopeless. And through the story in the Old Testament, God has this tendency to throw little breadcrumbs throughout the narrative just to make sure we know that he's there. Anytime Brianna and I travel and we have to leave our, our child uh, home, uh, Abby, um, we, Brianna has this habit of making, like, getting presents, wrapping presents 
one for every day that we're gone, just so Abby knows that mom is there, you know? And so Abby, even though we're not there, she gets this experience of like a present from mom, a present from mom every day. It's almost the same in the Old Testament where God, even though he's exposing the depravity of the human heart, he's leaving a little bread trail, little tokens here and there to give us hints that he is at work and that he's going to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. For example, the first one in Genesis 3, someone is coming. It's going to crush the serpent. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, someone is coming who will put God's covenant in your heart. He's not going to shout it at you. He's going to put it in your heart. Someone is coming who will get rid of our sin and that which separates us from God. See this in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, Leviticus 16, the scapegoat. Someone is coming who will bring God's kingdom rule to bear upon us. Isaiah 9, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast. By the time you get to Matthew chapter 1, having gotten so many hints along the way, if you're a Hebrew or a Jew, having gotten that story so many times and you open the first book of the New Testament and you read the first line what might seem like a silly genealogy to most people, divorced from the greater story, will blow your mind as you read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the one. This is the one who's gonna come to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to put death back into its own grave, who will right every wrong, who will establish a people for his own name in a particular place and his presence and the rule of the Father will be upon them and it will be good. He's the one. And yet there's also this added twist to the story in that he is so unlike some of our power-hungry leaders, those who are corrupt, who abuse their power, who get to the top by pushing everybody in their way down. Rather, this king comes in a very different way. Philippians and uh, Isaiah 53 and Philippians tell us a little bit about it. Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had Uh, come as a man in his external form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This king brings God's rule, but not by killing and pushing over and terrorizing, but by giving his life for them, for his enemies. Nowhere will you ever read another story or a religion of this type. No other world religion professes to say there is a God who is going to give his life for you in order to spread his kingdom. Nowhere. That's the story of Israel, and the reason why it's a good story for you and me It's because as Paul would tell us later in Romans, we get grafted in. We get grafted into the story. 
And the story that was so good for Israel then becomes so good for us as Jesus becomes our Messiah. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. Obviously hope that this helps as you read the Old Testament. Even in the small details, it won't always like, (laughs) Old Testament doesn't say Jesus, you know. Lamentations chapter 1 verse 22, Jesus! But you might get glimpses here and there. It might come to you easier. Wow, this is, you might read through Lamentations about this turmoil and realize, oh yeah, that's that tension. You might read Joshua about this victory and say, oh, that's a hint of things to come. So on and so forth. But even beyond just reading the Bible, I I hope that out of this you'll see something else. That everyone in this room has a story that they are writing for themselves. And I want to ask you today, how's that been going? Is it everything that's cracked up to be? Is it everything that you hoped it would be? And if it isn't, I want you to consider the indictment, the diagnosis, and the prescription offered from Genesis to 1 Kings and obviously beyond. That your story that you're writing for yourself is not grand enough to answer the deep capacity of your own soul. You are not a good enough king to rule your own life. You were meant for another. And this is the story that your soul has been longing for. You were created to worship a great God, the one true God. And in Jesus Christ is found everything that you will ever need to know about living that way. Are you writing your own story today? Stop now. Put down the pen and the ink, fall on your knees and worship the one true God and say, I cannot run my life a day longer. I freely give it over to you. I submit my life, my heart, my emotions, my thought life, my body, my ambitions, my passions, my career, my family to you as the greater king. And I pray that you would make much of it today. If you do that, or continue to do that, I charge you to test whether the promises that he makes in the Bible come true or not. Heavenly Father, as we sing today, I just pray that you would reveal yourself further to us. Show us your beauty, Lord. Show us your your splendor. And if I may be so bold to ask, give us a vignette of that scene in the temple where people saw you and they they couldn't even stand before you. So lovely and so holy and so beautiful were you. No eye can correctly see, no mind or thought can comprehend the things that you have in store. Pray that you would turn us away from the direction that we were in repentance, and that we would step into the kingdom of your beloved Son. By grace, we are saved. In Jesus' name, amen.